This is Binghamton Now on News Radio 1290 WNBF Binghamton and WNBF.com. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290 WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF News. Mostly cloudy today, high near 43. Partly cloudy tonight, low around 27. Wednesday, mostly sunny with a high near 54. A burial service has been held for the dozens of racehorses killed in a fire that tore through a barn at Tioga Downs in Nichols. State police investigators said Thursday morning's blaze in a horse stable was a case of arson. According to a Tioga Downs news release, 30 horses died in the fire. A private burial for the horses was held in what was described as a simple service. The horses were buried together adjacent to where the barn had stood. The racetrack statement said the burial was done with approval from authorities. State police arrested Boyd Fenton of Athens shortly after the fire was reported. He faces felony charges of arson, burglary, criminal mischief, and assault. Edgar Clark sustained second-degree burns on his face after he used a fire extinguisher to try to knock down the flames. Six of Clark's horses were killed in the blaze. Tioga Downs has announced the racetrack is working to establish a memorial to the horses lost in the fire. The memorial will stand as a lasting tribute to their impact on the harness racing community. The owner of a well-known eatery and event venue north of Binghamton is looking for someone to buy the place. Travis Evans of Glen Aubrey has operated the airport Inn restaurant in the town of Maine for more than two decades. And uh, that while the operations of the restaurant are going very well, he has decided that he'd like to do something different. The restaurant was rebuilt after a fire tore through the old Airport Inn building in January of 2019. The business reopened in a newly constructed facility in April 2020 in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. It initially operated as a takeout restaurant to comply with state restrictions. The airport in business and land located on Airport Road recently were listed for sale with an asking price of $1.9 million. The facility includes a banquet hall and a pavilion. Evans said the business has about 30 employees, but staffing has been a challenge in recent months. While he's hoping to sell the place, Evans said it will continue to be business as usual at the airport inn. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Division of Human Rights launched the Hate and Bias Prevention Unit in December of 2022 to help communities combat prejudice and discrimination. The HBPU is chaired by Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado, and the unit's mission is focused around the statewide network of regional councils and a rapid response team. The Division of Human Rights has established 10 regional hate and bias prevention councils representing every region across the state, including the southern tier. The councils are comprised of a network of public and private stakeholders that include community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, law enforcement, government agencies, and other advocacy groups. These broad and diverse partners work together in building connections and local capacity to prevent and respond to hate and bias incidences through community engagement and mobilization. The councils provide a place for community members to share information about trends in different areas of the state, develop innovative policy solutions, organize educational programming, 
hosts community events to raise awareness about hate and bias prevention, offer healing circles and community dialogues, partner with schools to address intergroup conflict, participate in conflict resolution, and anti-racism training. Philip Ginter, executive director of the Ross Park Zoo in Binghamton, announced openings for a limited number of applicants to join an adventure of a lifetime to Nepal in search of red pandas. The trip to Nepal begins November 3, 2024 for 10 days. Those joining the adventure will be accompanied by Ross Park Zoo staff. In light of the 5.6 earthquake in Nepal on November 3rd that left villages devastated, support for the ecotourism industry and its recovery in the country is being seen as even more critical to Nepal's national and local economies, as well as for the conservation of biodiversity in the affected regions. The trip, in partnership with the Red Panda Network, has already been in the planning stages prior to the November 3rd natural disaster. During the expedition, participants will witness the wonders of Nepal, in addition to amazing views of Mount Everest and the beauty of the country's culture. There are only five to seven openings for the excursion, with an estimated cost per person of five to $6,000. For more information, visit the Ross Park Zoo website. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF. Joseph, this is Binghamton now. And we welcome you. Probably uh, should give the date for historical purposes. Historians who are listening in the future. Today is Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. And as we take to the air, I'm pleased to report that the state of the Union is strong. So there. <laughs> and you thought we had problems. Nothing insurmountable. 607-772-1290. I encourage you to participate if you have thoughts. This is the Community Dialogue. Hi, welcome to Community Dialogue with your facilitator. My name's Bob. 607-772-1290. Oh, let's take a call. Who might it be? Good morning, WNBF. You're caller number one. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? I'm John. Uh, I'm calling from Binghamton. I'm a consultant to local government. Well, they certainly appreciate your help. Last night I was at the uh, Vestal 
town work session. The the council has a work session, so I went. And you saw. saw. You saw. Tell me, tell me about the work that was done. Well, do you remember when uh, less government was more government? Wasn't that the talk of conservatives and Republicans? It was just yeah. talk. As that hit song from a few decades ago, it was just talk, talk. Well, music machine aside, uh, let me tell you this. Uh, the Vestal taxpayers are going to get clobbered by this, and they're going to get clobbered uh, starting in 30 days. Now, one was expected. Uh, one was not uh, they're going to have two new special taxing districts. And the thing about these special taxing districts is they are uh, not under the control of local government. The Secretary of State, the New York Secretary of State, defines these uh, districts, uh, like library districts, etc., as uh, uh, branches of local government. So... The one that they had to do something about because they let it go on so long, and Schaefer was there for 18 years, was the they had a uh, actually a violation of the law. The town was running uh, the fire district, which is which is not kosher at all. So, uh, and Schaefer seemed last night to be putting himself in line for a seat on the uh, uh, the fire district board. What they're going to do is they're going to have a committee that's going to run things uh, for a year until December 2024 when there will be a slate of candidates uh, up uh, to uh, manage and uh, uh, administer the new fire district. Uh, but the more shocking thing was is that the Vestal emergency – is it the Vestal volunteer emergency? Uh, I don't know. If, it, if the word volunteer is in, but one thing that was made clear is uh, that there's only two volunteers that run the place. Everybody else is paid and paid pretty darn good, uh, and they're going to become essentially town employees now. Uh, and uh, they, I guess when it was started, they were originally town employees. But a new special taxing district is going to be created. Apparently, uh, this figure 750,000 uh, uh, was cited as potential red ink. It's going to be done within 30 days. Uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, very interesting because, again, Schaefer ran on the conservative party line. I'm just and curious, uh, help me here, because it seems to me that this came up six days after the election. Had this been discussed publicly prior to the election on November uh, 7th? According to Schaefer, he – no, it wasn't. And according to Schaefer, he says he only found out about it, uh, I guess meaning the deficit, uh, days ago, he said. So whether that was three days ago or ten days ago, I don't know. Uh, but uh, these uh, – <clears throat> you know, uh, and, and there was no talk. You know, it's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> Vestal has private uh, trash haulers. And there was never any talk of – no one ever brought up the point say, well, geez, why don't we <laughs> encourage a private – because this is a money-making uh, visit. You know, you, you get uh, $1,200 for uh, – <laughs> you know, uh, you turn on the, the extra life support equipment and you get more than that. 
this is a very expensive ride uh, to these hospitals, and no one mentioned uh, any possibility of a private sector. So, uh, and and this is very similar to uh, what occurred in the town of Union on this very issue. And you'd be surprised of the people that participated, and there, I guess there will be a public hearing of Vestal. The the people in the town of Union were on to the scheme. They they were on to this uh, of the relationship between the the town of Union and that of so-called volunteer ambulance service. Now you're going to get a call, and what's what's he talking bad about EMS? These are the first responders. These are that. Don't doesn't he know? I'm not talking about any of that jazz. Uh, that's obvious. What I'm talking about is uh, uh, John Schaefer. Uh, pull, making moves, pulling stunts, uh, even though he's going to be gone, not to live with them. And there's, and he also said that he was the only person that has taken uh, courses in the uh, management of uh, a fire district. So he, he seemed to be positioning himself. Well, uh, well, I mean, look at the institutional knowledge he has about the town. He's been the supervisor for. What twelve years? Yeah, I believe so. Very few supervisors in Vestal have have been in office for that long. That's I don't know. Maybe somebody was in office longer than that. None. Maybe Joe B. Monk. I don't. I don't know for sure. I don't. I don't have the Guinness Book of Vestal records, but that's a long time. So. Yeah, well, it's a lot it, of it's, it's a lot of institutional knowledge, John. I say institutional knowledge will set you free. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, uh, the town of Tyre. You know, he brags about Vestal and Vestal's this and that, and you know, oh, geez, it's just tremendous. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, and he, he he seems to indicate Vestal's the number one town. I don't know where he's getting these rankings, but how about the town of Tyre that has zero? zero property taxes. You know, when he does that, and he's not... Why you know, is that, though? Do they have a casino? Yeah, it's Del Lago. But, oh, okay. Well, is that but, why? You know, if you take the... But is you, that why? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, That's okay. Why, and the well, then maybe that, Vestal should get a casino. I don't know. Well, you know, parts of the town of Tyre are uh, farther away from the casino than... Vestal is from uh, Tioga, so it, it's very, very interesting. But uh, he was as irascible as ever. Uh, he said it he was glad to see everybody there except, I guess, me. So uh, he continued to bash uh, the uh, incoming uh, insurgents that are elected. So uh, uh, he, he's uh, going out in the grand style of John Schaefer, but what I'm what I'm what I'm concerned about, and people better be concerned about it, uh, that uh, he's going to make a bigger mess uh, than uh, he, he's already left, and he's left a mess. There's no question about it. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned, and as John Schaefer knows, he's always welcome here on the program, so he may. He may wish to respond, and if he wishes to respond, he knows how to call in because our lines are the people's lines. All people, all people are welcome to call 607-772-1290. This is Bob Joseph. I call the program Binghamton Now, although 
Some days we could call it Vestal now, or Endwell now, or Owego now, or America now. Maybe that's what will expand. Maybe we'll rebrand America now to serve the greatest country ever. From the Galt Auto Studios, this is WNBF News Radio AM 1290. Also available at 92.1 FM. We sell the ultimate driving machine at Galt BMW. Great. WNBM with the Binghamton Now program. I'm Bob Joseph. From WNBF Weather Radio. <laughs> Better not say that. I'll be in trouble with the operators of WXL38. It's quite the uh, crew that they have there. I love that station, by the way. There, the morning zoo at Weather Radio WXL38. <laughs> anyway, this is WNBF News Radio at 92.1 FM, 1290 AM. Uh, forecast courtesy of the National Weather Service, the folks who bring you weather radio, all the rage at certain times of the year. Cloudy today, a slight chance of showers this morning. High 43, a little bit of drizzle. Seemed to be um, experienced as I sauntered into the station. Partly cloudy tonight, low 27, mostly sunny tomorrow, high 54. Thursday, beautiful, sunny, and 60. Right now, in the heart of Parlor City, it's 43. That's 6 Celsius at Air Radio. <laughs> now it's Air Radio because I'm looking up the air quality. I think the air quality is pretty tasty. Uh, 28. Air quality index, 28. So that's good. Good breathing. Good breathing. What else is on our uh, website, WNBF.com? Interesting story for those of you who are familiar with the Airport Inn, the Airport Inn restaurant, uh, conveniently located on the Airport Road. And surprisingly, very close to the Greater Binghamton Airport, as WNBF.com advises the uh, owner is actually looking for someone to buy the place so if you have the right amount of financing you would be able to uh, acquire this legendary venue airport in restaurant so that story is 
on WNBF.com, and I suggest that you look it up. <laughs> look it up. Look it up. Go ahead. Look it up on your website. Oh, one thing I didn't include in the story was this bit of trivia. The Airport Inn played a bit role in one of the best movies of all time, the Liebestraum movie, which was shot entirely in the Binghamton area. It's hard to believe the movie was shot 33 years ago. The Airport Inn. I think I'm going to do an updated story about Liebestraum. I think enough time has passed that it's it's a good thing to do a story about Liebestraum. You remember that Lynch-esque production that was shot here in the Binghamton area. But in 1990, according to the Press and Sun Bulletin, the widest exposure the airport inn usually gets is to travelers going to and from what was then called Edwin A. Link Field. But the airport inn was the site of filming for the movie Liebestrom, which may give the inn national exposure. The airport inn was closed to the public since Saturday, according to a guy in Maine. And that guy said that a movie crew uh, was prepared Saturday through Wednesday. They spent several days preparing for the um, shooting of a scene that took place on Thursday. And then it says they would need a couple days to clean up the place so the inn could reopen according to someone affiliated with Liebestrom. So, if you uh, remember that movie, as well as I do, maybe you remember, I think in the final cut that was released to the public, I think, I'm told, um, the airport inn could be seen for a few seconds. I'm going to have to go back. I'm going to have to go back and take a look at my copy of Liebestrom to see how many seconds... The airport inn scene was included. I know, because I consulted with my Liebestrom movie expert, who told me on the DVD that was released, um, the unreleased scene that was shot at the airport inn was included on the DVD. So, of course, that was the old airport inn building, which sadly was destroyed by a fire in 2019. But anyway, take a look at the website, WNBF.com, for all your airport in news, because WNBF is committed to keeping an eye on things around here. I'm Bob Joseph. You're listening to Binghamton Now. Sunshine. 
WNBF. These Taylor Swift re-recordings sound weird, don't they? I will never love you The cost of love's too dear The original sounded so different now that she's re-recording everything she ever did so she can make more money. It just sounds weird. I think it's auto-tune. Number one hockey fan, Taylor Swift, right there. You heard it on WNBF. Beverly from the town of Dickinson, you're on the air. Yeah. Uh, Bob, uh, where where can I get a VCR? Uh, at garage sales. If you go to a garage, oh, garage sale. sales, because I was just wondering, you know, I, I, I have many of them here, you know. I just wondered if they, if they sold them. Uh, stores don't sell them, but if you go to a garage sale this weekend, you might be able to find one. That's that's the best advice. Uh, a lot of garage sales have VCRs. Not everyone, but that's your best. If you need a, a VHS machine or even harder to acquire, a Beta machine. Did you ever hear of Betamax? No, nothing I know of. Yeah, well, they they had format wars when when video cassette recorders were all the rage back in the '30s. They had uh, format wars, and you had VHS, which stood for Video Home System, and then you had Betamax, and they were two competing systems. In the end, Betamax sort of fizzled out and then the the winner in the format war was VHS because those cassettes could record more quality programming so but if you need a, a VHS recorder uh, check around it at garage sales like some weekend and you can probably get one for uh, really about two bucks or about five bucks because by the time people are selling their VHS machine they just want to get rid of it because they're not going to use those tapes anymore. So they pro some people would probably say, hey, take it. Get it out of here. I'm tired of it. So, But that's your best bet is probably like a garage sale or a yard sale, okay? Okay, thank you. All right. It's 9.35 at WNBF. I have a few VHS tapes left. Someday... And I'm not telling you what day it'll be, but someday, and I've threatened to do this in the past, I think I will put some of my VHS tapes, some of not, not like my recordings of Twin Peaks because they're covered by copyright, so not, not copyrighted TV programs, but I bu might put up some recordings of the video that I used to shoot here at WNBF Radio. Would you like that? I'm just putting it out there. If you like that idea, you should call me to let me know because I have a lot of things. Remember Bill Parker, uh, John Leslie, Tony Russell, Don Daniels, Mr. Mike, Dave Freeman. Actually, there were dozens of people. We, we had video. That's back when video was new, so 
I thought it would be great to document what goes on here at WNBF Radio for posterity. So if you think it's a good idea at some point that I take some highlights from those classic scenes here at WNBF Radio and then put them up online so the world can enjoy them now decades later, let me know. If I get enough of a response, I'll do it. And if I don't get much response, I'll probably still do it anyway. But if that's something you'd like to see on your computer, we could call it WNBF Behind the Scenes. Never before seen video of your favorite radio characters. It's 937. Good morning. You're on the air. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? Yeah, this is Bob from Shenango Forks. Hey. Yes, I have quite a few VCR players. And by fact, I bought one at a yard sale last year for $2, and it still had a remote, and it works perfect. And see, that was my point. Um, At at this stage, uh, you can't just go to one random garage sale this Saturday and say, where's your VCR? Because you may not find it at the first one. But I I guarantee if you check out a few garage sales uh, over the next couple of weekends, you'll probably find a VHS machine that still works. Yeah, well, the reason I'm calling is about the movie Liebestrom. Back in the 90s, I had a lawn care business. And me and my friend are in my steak body truck coming up Robinson Street, and the street's deserted. No cars, nothing. And there's cops on every corner. And, you know, we kept going, and we stopped just before Howard Ave. There was a place called Max Sub. And we got a sub. We're sitting there at the bench, and... People were looking at us kind of strange, and finally this kid came over and knew my buddy, and it was one of the Burnses, because one of the Burnses was involved in making that movie or something, worked on it, something, and he told us they were filming a movie, so we didn't know anything about it. He goes, well, it's too late for you to move. Just sit still, don't look, and all of a sudden, everybody like ducked back in the buildings, and down from State Hospital came the car with, I can't think of the actress. It wasn't Novak, was it, Kim Novak? I yeah, Kim Novak. She was stuck up there at, um, well, it's now the health center, but it used to be the psychiatric right. center. That was uh, a key a key location for, for the shooting. She was the biggest name star, even though she got very little face time in the movie. Right. Well, down the street came the car, and in front of that was the camera trucks and stuff like that. So we just sat there. He goes, don't look. Of course, we looked anyways, and we knew we'd be cut out. But my friend knew the Burns kid because my friend was also a roadie for the Burns girls back in those days or whatever. But it was, you know, like I said, I never saw the movie. They do have, I think, uh a DVD or a tape at the library because I saw it. I'm going at the bar and take a look at it. Well, you should. You, know. you should. I uh, yeah. I enjoyed. That was the summer of 1990, and yeah. uh, the director was Michael Figgis, and so yes, Kim Novak was in it. Kevin Anderson, well, was- Pamela Gidley. Yeah. I, I personally enjoyed Pamela Gidley, but then that's just it's a matter of personal preference. I thought yeah, she was I thought she was the highlight of the film from from where I sat. Yeah, well I'll have to go run it then. Yeah, you should. 
We yeah. we had fun because that's back when WNBF Radio was located at Security Mutual Building. So we were on the fifth floor. Right. So when they were shooting the scenes downtown outside what is the Perry Building, but it was called something else in the Liebestrom movie. So we we were able to see all the activity. And sometimes it was uh, a little inconvenient because some streets were closed. Shenango Street and Court Street were closed for a while. It was fascinating to see um, how a, a movie was shot. And one of my co-workers at the time, he worked over at the Hawk radio station. Did you ever hear of them? The Hawk yeah. country station. Oh, yeah. So Eric Dino was uh, an extra. And so... You know, he, he was in one of the party scenes. And so when the movie opened in New York City, I think it opened in 1991. So the movie was playing at a theater in Manhattan. And by then, Eric, I think, had uh, moved down to New York City or that area. And I said to Eric, I said, let's go see the movie at the theater in Manhattan, even though I was up here in Binghamton. So I drove down to New York City and met Eric at the theater. And then we got to watch the uh, first run of Liebestrom in Manhattan. And it was great to see so many scenes from um, the Binghamton area. Downtown Binghamton, the south side, off uh, Mill Street, um, the facility on the east side of Binghamton at the end of Robinson Street and, of course, the airport inn. So, yes, if you... I, I won't say the story was really strong. It sort of meandered, but it was okay for me because that actually is kind of the quirky movie production I enjoy. A lot of other people uh, thought it just wasn't, wasn't that sharp a movie. Myself, I thought it was fine. But, yeah, if you have a chance, rent rent the movie or even i just checked online yesterday you can get the dvd online for under 15 dollars. so you know it's and the dvd also has has that uh um scene i think a 10 minute scene from the airport in that that was not included in the final final cut of the movie well i'm pretty sure it's dvd the library has oh okay well, then, yeah, yeah I didn't Probably know they so. had it. I, uh, I was just talking, when I was working on the story about the airport inn now being for sale, I contacted my Liebestrom expert, and I was assured that um, in the final cut, the, the airport inn barely made it. If it made it into the final cut, it was only a few seconds. But on the DVD, I think there's about a 10-minute uh, piece of of the uh, section from the airport in that didn't make the uh, cut. Well, so yeah, check check out that DVD when you have a chance. Yeah, I'll let you know when I see it if the airport scenes in it. Then okay, so. appreciate your call. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, thanks. Nine forty four WNBF. Of course, the true star of the movie was the sheriff. I think he was the most compelling character. He had. One of the most memorable scenes. As I recall, it's 944. Bob Joseph on your side. Binghamton Now on WNBF. It's 
949 WNBF, or as they say on the automated stations, 11 before the hour. <laughs> We're not automated, though. We're live and local. Coming up later today on WNBF, Dan Bongino from noon to 3, Sean Hannity from 3 to 6, and the constitutional experts, Mark Levin, coming up tonight from 6 to 9. Joseph with you on a Tuesday morning on the radio, 92.1 FM, 1290 AM, and screaming at WNBF.com. Also, keeping you connected via the free WNBF app. Coming up later today, WNBF.com will have some interesting local news that you're unlikely to see anywhere else, at least for the next few days. So if you want to see some original reporting... I recommend checking out WNBF.com for all your local reporting needs. And then check out every other local website, too, because we're not the be-all and end-all. We are just one small cog in Binghamton's journalistic machine. So celebrate journalism. Celebrate. Next time you see a journalist, say thank you. <laughs> Except for those of you who think it's all fake. Oh, I don't want to thank a journalist. It's all fake. Okie dokie. <laughs> okay, Tucker. <laughs> I'm looking at the stories over here at WNBF.com. They're um, pretty good stories, I think. Still want to know what they're going to do now with the uh, Ozolid building in Johnson City. I have an idea. And I might talk about it later this week. I have a very special idea for the Ozolid building in Johnson City. Because at one point they were planning to put in senior housing there. Which, that would be nice to have some senior housing so close to Main Street, Johnson City. And that building is solid. I, I was over there a few days ago when I was doing reporting for the story... And what I understand is that they have some other plans that they're pursuing. But still, that'd be a great place for a Binghamton News Hub. Can you imagine if we had the money, by the way, we don't have the money, but if we had the money to set up something called the Binghamton News Hub, BNH, and we could have... Uh, TV, we could have a newspaper, we could have a radio station, we could have online websites. There'd be so much content coming out of the Binghamton News Hub at that building right there. I wonder if I can buy it from the Binghamton University Foundation. 25 Ozolid Road, home of your Binghamton News Hub. Suddenly, 
All the news that we used to receive and more could come from a single hub. Looks like there are three floors. We would even have a, a community room so the community could gather at the Binghamton News Hub. TV studios, radio studios, a newsroom with actual, it's staffed with actual reporters, photojournalists, videographers, investigative teams at the Binghamton News Hub. I would assemble a team of the finest journalists in the tri-state area. Young journalists and older journalists, those who've retired, those who briefly paused their journalistic careers for other opportunities so they could afford to eat. We'd put them all together under one roof. The Binghamton News Hub. Suddenly, news is cool again. That's my vision for that building. The Binghamton News Hub. I have to call Harvey and see. He would support it. 954, Bob Joseph. Dreaming of News Hubs on WNBF. WNBF serving the world with one telephone and four microphones and a big stick on Ingram Hill. Yeah, that's where the transmitter is. People in Lysander are unhappy because of Micron. The big behemoth wants to put a big mega, mega, giga, giga uh, fabrication thing in um, clay, um, not far from the Lysander Town Hall. The people in Lysander are so scared and so fed up with Micron, they actually voted in a new town supervisor, a Democrat of all things. Guy's name is Kevin Rode, and... He uh, easily defeated the Republican incumbent supervisor, apparently because people in Lysander are worried about the wacky plans for Micron. They don't want Micron coming in and taking over the town. And so they voted in a new town supervisor. Very interesting. It's 10 o'clock at WNBF Binghamton. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290 WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF News. Mostly cloudy today, high near 43. Partly cloudy tonight, low around 27. Wednesday, mostly sunny with a high near 54. A burial service has been held for the dozens of racehorses killed in a fire that tore through a barn at Tioga Downs and Nichols. 
State police investigators said Thursday morning's blaze in a horse stable was a case of arson. According to a Tioga Downs news release, 30 horses died in the fire. A private burial for the horses was held in what was described as a simple service. The horses were buried together adjacent to where the barn had stood. The racetrack statement said the burial was done with approval from authorities. State police arrested Boyd Fenton of Athens shortly after the fire was reported. He faces felony charges of arson, burglary, criminal mischief and assault. Edgar Clark sustained second-degree burns on his face after he used a fire extinguisher to try to knock down the flames. Six of Clark's horses were killed in the blaze. Tioga Downs has announced the racetrack is working to establish a memorial to the horses lost in the fire. The memorial will stand as a lasting tribute to their impact on the harness racing community. The owner of a well-known eatery and event venue north of Binghamton is looking for someone to buy the place. Travis Evans of Glen Albright has operated the airport Inn restaurant in the town of Maine for more than two decades. And uh, that while the operations of the restaurant are going very well, he has decided that he'd like to do something different. The restaurant was rebuilt after a fire tore through the old airport inn building in January of 2019. The business reopened in a newly constructed facility in April 2020 in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. It initially operated as a takeout restaurant to comply with state restrictions. The airport in business and land located on Airport Road recently were listed for sale with an asking price of $1.9 million. The facility includes a banquet hall and a pavilion. Evans said the business has about 30 employees, but staffing has been a challenge in recent months. While he's hoping to sell the place, Evans said it will continue to be business as usual at the airport inn. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Division of Human Rights launched the Hate and Bias Prevention Unit in December of 2022 to help communities combat prejudice and discrimination. The HBPU is chaired by Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado, and the unit's mission is focused around the statewide network of regional councils and a rapid response team. The Division of Human Rights has established 10 regional hate and bias prevention councils representing every region across the state, including the Southern Tier. The councils are comprised of a network of public and private stakeholders that include community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, law enforcement, government agencies, and other advocacy groups. These broad and diverse partners work together in building connections and local capacity to prevent and respond to hate and bias incidences through community engagement and mobilization. The councils provide a place for community members to share information about trends in different areas of the state, develop innovative policy solutions, organize educational programming, host community events to raise awareness about hate and bias prevention, offer healing circles and community dialogues, partner with schools to address intergroup conflict, participate in conflict resolution, and anti-racism training. Philip Ginter, executive director of the Ross Park Zoo in Binghamton, announced openings for a limited number of applicants to join an adventure of a lifetime to Nepal in search of red pandas. The trip to Nepal begins November 3rd, 2024 for 10 days. Those joining the adventure will be accompanied by Ross Park Zoo staff. 
In light of the 5.6 earthquake in Nepal on November 3rd that left villages devastated, support for the ecotourism industry and its recovery in the country is being seen as even more critical to Nepal's national and local economies, as well as for the conservation of biodiversity in the affected regions. The trip, in partnership with the Red Panda Network, has already been in the planning stages prior to the November 3rd natural disaster. During the expedition, participants will witness the wonders of Nepal, in addition to amazing views of Mount Everest and the beauty of the country's culture. There are only five to seven openings for the excursion, with an estimated cost per person of five to $6,000. For more information, visit the Ross Park Zoo website. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF. Joseph, this is Binghamton Now on your Tuesday morning. Coming up, we'll be taking more phone calls. First, though, we have a guest, the mayor of the village of Johnson City, Martin Maney. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? Good. Now, somebody told me that 2024 will be a very, very quiet year for Johnson City and little activity is expected throughout the village. Was that person accurate? I certainly hope not. I haven't heard those <laughs> <rumors>. <laughs> Just, just testing, just testing. No, it's um, it's actually pretty amazing what's going on across the village. I, I haven't seen this much activity in Johnson City, maybe ever, at 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 once. I mean, there are a lot of projects that have happened over the last few years. A new some new projects, new building, demolitions, reconstruction. Um, things being uh, repurposed and so on. So it seems that uh, almost everywhere you look throughout the village, there are some some things going on in terms of uh, commercial, educational, recreational. Seems seems a lot is happening in Johnson City. Yes, we're uh, to to use a metaphor. We're like a uh, butterfly coming out of its cocoon right now. We're we're transitioning nicely, and and there there's a lot of transition going on. All right. So we'll try to cover quite a few things. First, and I know we we touched on this, I think, in our uh, last episode a few weeks ago. And I know finally I got around to reporting the story because I, I contacted Jerry Willard with the First Ward Action Council. The uh, old Ozalid building uh, on the east end, the eastern boundary of Binghamton University's Health Sciences Campus. At one point, the university is working with a partnership with the First Ward Action Council to potentially develop 30 senior housing units in there. And I know the project, the early stages, got pretty far along. I believe even in uh, late September, it received approval from the village planning uh, board. But ultimately, according to 
uh, Jerry Willard of the First Ward Action Council, they've decided to uh, not proceed with that uh, housing development. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate at this time that uh, they're not uh, looking to move forward in partnership with uh, Binghamton University Foundation because uh, that was going to be a combination of the senior housing and um, Upstate Medical uh, was going to have a, a space inside the uh, 18 Park Street. Uh, I, from what I you know was told, that it was just uh, uh, a timing issue where. Uh, First Word Action Council really wasn't uh, prepared and comfortable to move forward at the pace that Binghamton University was hoping to get the site developed. And Jerry Willard mentioned, and I've had uh, similar conversations with local officials when it comes to housing projects that are very much contingent on, on a state funding aspect. The state of New York does provide grants for various projects, but the process is complicated, and and certainly um, many times it it depends. Say if some other project is in the pipeline for a community or a town, sometimes uh, that that can affect the the overall timing of of project applications, other project applications. Because I think the state really works to um, maybe approve two or three projects a year in a certain area, but then those that, that didn't make the, um, the cut in a particular year get put off. Similar to what happened, I think, with the IBM Country Club project just outside Johnson City. They, well, were, they were planning to start that earlier this year. Well, but I don't think they applied until this round. No, but um, I think they waited intentionally because I, I, I know they, they initially were talking about applying for that uh, with the previous round. You know, last fall, but you're right. They for that project, they just applied finally. Um, I believe in the last few weeks, so that's why. Um, yeah, that project didn't didn't go forward initially. Because remember, when they they were tearing down the IBM Country Club, the IDA and the county executive they were discussing actual groundbreaking this this past spring. So something got changed, whether it was the application or something. But anyway, the project got push back about a year. Well, right. And it's just, um, it's HCR. Uh, it's the agency, the state agency that, uh, distributes the grants, administers the grants and it's a lengthy process. And, uh, we spoke, uh, probably a year ago, you and I were, were chatting about 333 grand F and, uh, that still has not, uh, come to fruition. They haven't broke ground on it at all yet, uh, because they still haven't gotten their funding. And I know they applied again in this round. Um, and I think the governor is is uh, told HCR they should um, open up a little more because there are many projects that need to be on throughout the state, and she is a big proponent of housing. And she she's uh, I guess telling HCR maybe they should ease these requirements or restrictions that it's not in any state law that HCR just seems to have adopted where they're only going to fund a pro, uh, one or two projects per season. And I know that has created frustration in different parts of the state, including here in the Triple Cities. I mean, whether it's Binghamton or Endicott or Johnson City, a lot of projects depend on HCR-related programs. And if those programs, for whatever reason, don't move forward on, on the schedule that you would like, then, then you see some of these big projects, as you say, Grand Avenue, where Philadelphia Sales used to be. I know the developer, Larry Regan, had talked about the his plan for a 72-unit complex, a four-story uh, 
building at that site. He had talked about that more than a year ago. But again, until you get the financing component settled, uh, you can't go forward. You can't start construction until you have every every aspect of the financing in place. Now, and that's so hopefully uh, with with HCR awarding more than a few uh, grants a year, that that should hopefully get these projects off the back burner and, you know, get shovels in the ground. So ultimately, um, with this one building, we're hopping back over to the health sciences campus there, the Ozolid building. Now, I went there a few days ago to take some uh, more current pictures for the story that the apartment project wasn't gonna, going to go forward. But I, I think there might still be this possibility that the university can finalize a partnership with Upstate Medical University. I know uh, President Stenger had talked about that earlier this year, so perhaps perhaps that'll be one part of the building. But it's a big building. He had also, uh, some years ago, when the Binghamton University Foundation acquired the building, he was talking about perhaps using a section of the first floor for manufacturing purposes, for manufacturing pharmaceuticals in conjunction with the pharmacy school. Yeah, um, from what I've learned in, in my short time as mayor and dealing with President Stanger, is he always ha- seems to have a plan B, and uh, it, it's a good thing, you know. So he's not um, just tunnel visioned or focused on all right. If this doesn't work, it's, the project is dead. He he always has a plan B. So I'm I'm sure there's something in the near future we'll be seeing from uh, from President Stanger what he's going to put in there along with uh, Upstate Medical. Right. I wouldn't be surprised some, for some sites he has plans C and D. <laughs> You're I, not I mean, wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's you know it's like 4D chess. You know, not every not everybody is able to play that game, but but right. some people, by nature of of uh, their their job responsibilities, they have to look at all all potential angles. It's 10:19. We're talking with Johnson City Mayor Martin Maney. Well, speaking of Binghamton University and speaking of um, a project that I think is just now starting to emerge at one of the finest newspaper printing facilities of the 21st century, sadly used only for 12 years, but, but certainly financed at great expense by state taxpayers under the Brownfield program, the old Gannett building on Gannett Drive, of all places. Um, the University Foundation also acquired that, and I understand that there now is discussion of a new use for the the old newspaper printing plant. Yeah, he's. Um, I know that they've moved a lot of their uh, book storage in there, and I believe they've been in front of our zoning and/or planning. One of them, to, I think, they're also looking to uh, put some classroom space in there to uh, do their uh, speech pathology program. So ultimately, and, and, and that would seem to tie in with the uh, other health science campus uh, components that are located generally along Corliss Avenue. Yes, and you know, with, um, with their expansion of classrooms in there, that just, uh, that helps, you know, the, our Lestrav corridor now, you know, brings that in with, the, with more of the health and science campuses and it's gonna continue growth here in Johnson City. See anything else happening in that general area the because you've got the the old newspaper printing plant and then of course uh, a lot of people do business at the walmart store next door then a lot of people 
visit the CFJ Park. Is there any expectation of of other things that would or could happen in that general area? Because they're again with the educational component now with BU, the retail component with Walmart, and then the recreational component with CFJ Park. A lot of people. Oh, and I almost forgot the Visions Federal Credit Union at uh, on Pavilion Drive. So you've got a lot of people coming into that area for um, various reasons. Is that likely to remain the same or just uh, slightly evolve over the next few years? I honestly don't know who has plans um, for anything more and, in, in, you know, more development there. There is, um, I mean, we're, I'll date myself, a lot of, where Whipples was and then it became Hanks. Uh, that There's a big, that parcel right there. I'm sure as time goes on, there's going to be. I would. I would love to see some development there. You know, because that, well, that's, that's a good the point right now. Right. Well, that's a good point. That's located just west of CFJ Park and just steps away from the Victory Lofts Apartments with 156 apartments. So I could see potentially. Is there? Do you, as mayor, do you see uh, a, a potential that 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 land there, that um, across from Red's Cattle Inn and CFJ Park and behind the Victory Lofts on the other side of the tracks, does that have potential for, for retail at some point? Well, I'm sure it's, it's got potential for whatever somebody's um, vision is. I mean, it's, there's a big sign that says it's for sale or lease. Uh, you know, so I'm, hopefully, you know, with the continued development in, in that area, uh, especially with what people can see. I mean, you drive down the highway and you see how gorgeous the, the victory factory is now. And it's got life in there and there's lights on and wow, there's this lot right across from it. You know, what, what activity can we build from there? Well, what about residential? Would there be, because you've got, uh, of course, as I mentioned, uh, Matthew Paulus completed the victory loss project. He's moving forward with the smaller project at 18 Avenue B Across from the, sir. Yes. <laughs> um, so could residential be also uh, p- possibly in the mix with that that land we were just talking about? Do you see any any reason? Say if somebody says, um, "Hey, we we have a, a vision for some sort of residential project, and it might fit well there." Uh, is there any reason you know of that that it couldn't potentially go there? Other than economy, no. I okay, mean, that's... we would, uh, we the, as far as the village is concerned, we'd we'd welcome people to come in and take a look at it. We've got uh, zero issues with working with anybody that wants to put something in there that that, that fits with the area. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't want to see a uh, a mill or a steel press or something going in there that would. Uh, manufacturing is good. Don't get me wrong. We need manufacturing in this area, but it just it wouldn't suit the neighborhood anymore. Yeah, the, the, this neighborhood has transitioned, I think, out of the, the manufacturing uh, site that it once was into, uh, you know, retail and, and uh, residential space. But I could see uh, a case being made for um, a potential decent residential complex directly across from the park, directly, hey, call it carousel lofts. It'd be directly across from the uh, the carousel at CFJ Park. Then you've got some of the other things going. Some people would like the the fact that they'd be close to the um, big box store there. Mm-hmm. And who knows? Maybe some BU professors who will be working 
over at the former Gannett building, maybe they'd like to be able to walk to work. And who knows, Gannett may change their mind and put a printing press in there again. I wouldn't put it past them, <laughs> you know. They, they've they've uh, surprised us in the past. Wouldn't that be great if they decided that they're going to come up with a super newspaper in, in the yeah. face, fly in the face of technology <laughs> and come up with the bi the biggest newspaper in the history of the USA today. Yeah, there you go. Right. Right. And the, 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 the main printing site would be right there, right across the street where they could look at their, their former uh, printing plant. I would support that. <laughs> yeah. I would I would conduct the first interview with Gary Gannett, you know, and uh, com commend him as a, being a visionary for the 21st century print newspapers. We're talking with the Johnson City Mayor Martin Maney. Um, oh, hopscotching back over to uh, um, Avenue B with uh, Matthew Paulus. I I believe that project at 19 Avenue B is still something that's. We, we could see work beginning in the not-too-distant future there because that's another residential project that Mr. Paulus has, has discussed. I know that he's had some uh, issues going on, so a few family issues, and that's kind of taken a, a front seat for what's going on with him right now. I know that he, he wants to get moving quickly on 19 Avenue B because he's got um, the... Uh, commercial component he's got, you know, so he needs to get moving on that. And then again, the, to develop it into the, the apartments, the, uh, they're going to be one bedroom, um, workforce, uh, apartments that are going to be put in there. It's 1026. We'll be talking more with Johnson city mayor in just a moment. I'm Bob Joseph on news radio, WNBF from the Galt auto studios. This is WNBF news radio AM 1290 also available at 92.1 FM save in a big way at Galt Chevrolet. WNBF at 10.30. I'm Bob Joseph. We're speaking with Johnson City Mayor Martin Maney. A development project also is being planned for the old Johnson City High School at 435 Main Street. We spoke a bit about this a few weeks ago, but that's another um, building, certainly a, a building that's been standing there for over a century that at some point in the next few years could come back to life. Uh, yes, I know uh, they're close to acquiring the property. Uh, Mark Lane is, and it's just, it's going to be exciting. Uh, he's going to put uh, commercial and residential space into it, and he's going to have, uh, I guess, from what he's told me, a mix of residential space where some's going to be affordable housing, the rest will be market rate. And it's just, it's, it's going to be nice to see uh, that building has been, um, again, like you said, it's been here for just over 100 years and uh, had smaller businesses in it that have kind of gone on the wane. And uh, just to see it with, uh, I guess, more life in it, it's going to be another asset to our downtown. And we've seen 
quite a few things already going on right in that area, both to the west and east of the old high school. Of course, to the west, just outside the village, uh, UHS has been repurposing the Aldi store. The Westover Aldi store is going to be turned into a daycare center, which could probably open in the next couple of months, I believe. And then a bit to the east, the former CVS pharmacy building is being renovated right now, and UHS will be using that as a 24-7 retail pharmacy and also a, a site where vaccinations and some other services will be provided. Uh, yes, it's it's going to be, you know, hopefully that, that keeps spreading as, as you know, uh, we were discussing, you know, Walgreens is, is going to be closing or has closed. So hopefully um, the repurposing of these buildings and, and that part of Main Street continues to uh, happen so they don't sit idle for very long. The closing of Walgreens, that seemed to happen suddenly. I know um, a couple weeks before they pulled the plug and put up a sign that said, oh, by the way, it, I, I enjoyed the sign uh, in the front entrance. It said important information. And when people showed up, it said basically important information were closed. And I thought, well, that's, that's one way to go about it. At least when CVS closes pharmacies, they usually give customers and employees a few weeks notice. Did you know that, that Walgreens was going to shut down? I had heard some rumors and went over to ask the employees and the people I spoke with all, all claimed that it wasn't going to close. Did you know it would close? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, zero, you know, it's rather J.J. and way they put it out there. They just put it on the sign and that was that. Yeah, they sent some emails to some of their loyal customers three days after it closed to let them know. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, when I'll, every business in Johnson City that closes that doesn't have to report to the state, uh, we do not receive any notification that they're closing other than, you know, with the general when the general public finds out as well. But it still is kind of interesting. I mean, again, every company has its own philosophy. I mean, sometimes a surprise closure, I guess, is, is one way to instill confidence in the brand going forward that, oh, I, what I, I was thinking, maybe they do it so for the stores that are still open, it encourages people to go to those stores to support them or else we'll close those too. Well, you know, at least you would hope that the, um, they're, they're, like you said, they're, they're customers who have their prescriptions filled there were made aware long before the closing so they could get... Uh, get their medications in order so they can find a new place to get their medications filled. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Well, by the way, they still haven't returned my call, but I'll... <laughs> <Nobody's there>. <laughs> <laughs> but of all the of all the stories I need to follow up on, on that's, that's, that's sort of on the back burner. Um, 10.35 here at WNBF. Tioga State Bank. I remember a few years ago that uh, Tioga State Bank acquired property not far from what was then called the Oakdale Mall. And um, there was uh, a plan at the time, and I knew it wasn't going to happen quickly, but there was a plan that Tioga State Bank would put in a, a new sort of more modern and, and not big, but a um, sort of a modern a branch over uh, on Harry L. Drive. And I see that 
uh, they actually have had a, another site plan review before the planning board. So it appears that Tioga State Bank will be eventually going forward with um, constructing something at that site. Yes, I uh, speaking with some of their representatives. Uh, it, again, this was another COVID casualty as, as they started the process before COVID hit and then COVID hit and it put this um, out into the distant future. Now, hopefully it's in the not so distant future that uh, they're going to be moving forward on it. And again, it, the, the development in that area is, is just, um, it's feeding. It's, it's just feeding off of each other. What's happening at the Oakdale Commons is, is moving into the neighborhood. Uh, hopefully the, um, the Mortal Kombat mess to that intersection of Tulin and Harial, we've tried to uh, ease that again with the traffic signals. Some, you know, it's not, it's not semaphore, it's just a traffic signal. And I think as soon as people again get acclimated to it, that they will be able to see that it's a double left into Wegmans, which will ease congestion up, which will, again, that'll help because um, Taylor State Bank is just west of Wegmans. So it'll, um, you know, hopefully that helps with their construction project because I'm sure once they move in, we'll see more congestion in that area. And I am looking at the original story that I reported four years ago. In fact, it was November 2019 when the bank president, Robert Fisher, said they were planning a bank of the future with a newer, higher-tech, high-touch feel that would be different from their traditional offices. And he said it would have a, a pod design that was being adopted by the industry. And again, not a big bank, maybe only 3,000 square feet or so, but uh, at the time, he said that they were going to be working with the town of Union officials as well as village officials because there had been the animal hospital and so, some other yeah. nearby buildings were um, demolished in preparation for, for the, the bank project. But as you mentioned, over the last few years, uh, the pandemic changed quite a few things. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, hopefully, um, I, again, the economy, too, you know, it's, it's just... Um, as we know, interest rates have, have fluctuated quite a bit. And, um, you know, so these people have to sit down and look at their their performance, say, okay, can we still afford to do this? Because, you know, interest rates have gone up. And for every day or week that is lost in, in starting construction, I mean, construction costs really never go down. So no. if, if they were going to do, and I don't believe... Mr. Fisher ever said how much the project was going to cost, but say if it was going to be a $2 million project four years ago, by now it could be a $4 million project right. just the way costs have gone up. Right. Speaking of the Oakdale Commons area, there still seems to be a lot of construction continuing. The uh, House of Sport now has been open for several weeks. The uh, two restaurants near there have also been open for a while, and I, I also see at the uh, most recent planning board meeting, there was uh, additional discussion about the um, two of the higher profile businesses that will be coming in there, Dave and Buster's, probably in the next three months or so, and also BJ's Wholesale Club. And I, I know those projects are, are moving quite quickly. Yes. Uh from what we've been told here at the village that uh, BJ's hoping uh, they hope to open sometime at the end of uh, January and Dave and Buster's is looking hopefully to open around the same time as March Madness, uh, which is, you know, good for them. 
they've been front of the planning board because they need some uh, zoning for signs, uh, the variances for signs. And and they are they're they're moving rapidly. That uh, I drive by the mall half a dozen times a day, and just the pace that they've put the the structure up for BJ's is just very impressive to watch. When is speaking of that area, one of the losses not too long ago for many people, especially for traditionalists, was the closing of the Friendly's restaurant. Have they torn that down yet? No. They have not torn that down yet. And uh, I guess, you know, it's slated for a car wash and I'd, it's been to the planning board and that's where it is. That's as far as I can go with any any explanation on what's happening there. But they're still planning to do a splash car wash the last yes. you knew. Yes. All right. But Friendly's hasn't been torn down yet. No, but hmm. Friendly's is closed. Right. Well, I think that it must have been the last friendlies in the area. Just about. Just about. And that was the sad thing. They were, for a while, they, there were lots of friendlies. And then, for whatever reason, I think, I think the way the company was run, that's what somebody told me. Oh, it's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, it is too bad because people around here, around the Triple Cities, liked all their friendlies. But, oh, well, times change. And the way I look at it, and you, you have no need to comment. You know, we lose a friendlies and gain a Chick-fil-A, you know, ultimately. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You don't have to comment. I, I, I can't offer a comment because I'm just like you. I have no idea when and if it's going to come. No, but we I can mean, have would our... it be an asset to our community? Sure. I think so. Even if Is they sold chicken... I have no idea. Sure. Yeah, even if they sold chicken sandwiches only four days a week. <laughs> even if they sold them just Monday through Thursday, that'd be fine by me. It's 10:41. We'll talk more about Johnson City with the mayor, Martin Maney, in just a moment here on WNBF and WNBF.com. WNBF at 10:44. This is Binghamton now with Bob Joseph. And we're speaking with Johnson City Mayor Martin Maney. DRI, the Downtown Revitalization Initiative. This has been talked about for, seems like, the last couple of years. And now I understand the village is preparing to turn its application into the state very soon. Yes, uh, we should be submitting our application before the year is out. Um, it's it's been a long process with a lot of meetings and a, and a lot of hard work put in by a lot of good people, and it's uh, it's going to be nice once the state gets it and hopefully um, they see that we've done our due diligence and they will start awarding the grant money uh, rather quickly instead of, instead of uh, later because I know some of these projects people would uh, like to get moving forward on and it's um, it's a you have to uh, expend the funds before the state reimburses you so I know a lot of these people. Don't want they can't start their projects because once you start it, if there's anything that you um, spend out of that project prior to being awarded, then the state will not give you the money. So there's there's a lot of projects in the pipeline that want to get started, and hopefully the state, you know, um, all right, your project is good, so they could get building and then get uh, reimbursed the funds. So of the things that'll be covered in the DRI application, is there one in particular that that you think is 
most prominent or most promising? Well, we have $9.7 million um, in grant funding. And that's that's what the DRI award is. The state keeps $300,000 to um, pay the consultants. We are going to be submitting over $12 million so the state will end up sorting out what they want to award or if they want to reduce amounts or they, they feel that a project isn't good because we don't want to run into the problem. Uh, I think Endicott ran into this where, um, oh, is it the Green Mountain uh, lights pulled out of the, the DRI? Yeah, the, big hit. The old, it, yeah the, the, the old Kmart plaza, Kmart plaza turned, right. turned out not to be suitable for what Green Mountain needed. Right, so, the, so that was a, a big hit. And that kind of threw the, their um, submittal into disarray. So that's why we're submitting uh, quite a bit more than the, than what we're awarded. So um, if, God forbid, there's a, a big project that pulls out of this, that we won't be uh, searching for something to fill the void. It's 1047. More to come as we focus on Johnson City on this Tuesday morning. I'm Bob Joseph. This is WNBF 92.1 FM, 1290 AM, streaming at WNBF.com. WNBF Live at 10.50. This is Bob Joseph. This hour talking about Johnson City with the mayor, Martin Maney. I see work is underway at the little corner park, Jenison Park, near uh, Corliss Avenue and Willow Street. They've been busy the last couple of weeks. Tell us about uh, the work that is getting underway and... What is uh, ultimately going to happen with that small village park near the BU Health Sciences campus? Okay, all the um, groundwork's being done. The the, uh, the paving and the elevation changes. There's a small little um, amphitheater that's the component that's built into that, which you can kind of see coming to fruition if you walk by the park. Uh, the park the, the park won't be completed until next year. It's just we're tr- we're finally. Um, got the construction uh, group in there starting, so it will be done before, uh, you know, hopefully summer hits next year. Uh, it's just going to be a nice little gathering space, a uh, little performance space. There's going to be some uh, art uh, structures in there. Uh, and, you know, with, with any luck, maybe uh, the Goodwill Theater, or not the Goodwill Theater, but the um, the Firehouse Stage, the, you know, maybe they'll... Uh, move something outside and, and have a little small performance venue out there for them to take advantage of and, and bring some uh, some music and some performance to to that area of the village. Next to the Jenison Park, Binghamton University has been discussing over the last few years a vision for green space, sort of park space, that uh, is supposed to be developed on the parcels that Binghamton University Foundation acquired over last few years have you heard anything new about getting the plans for that bu green space project finalized uh, that area between corliss avenue and main street i know that they um would love to get moving on it uh whether they move forward with or without acquiring the last parcel that's um on the uh the green space area uh it's you know i know that when we discussed our our park plans with their green space park plans that we do um, 
we worked together, so there'll be a, a seamless transition from what we have to what uh, President Stanger has envisioned for his green space. Yeah, I understand that that one holdout, and I've spoken with the the owner of that apartment building. That is about the only thing. I guess it is the only it thing. Is the on, only thing, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on Lewis Street, that hasn't been acquired. When I spoke with him, he seemed pretty adamant that he didn't intend to sell. And so I, I'm I'm guessing that probably the university has a plan A and a plan B for developing the green space. I, I guess probably their their preference would be able to take the entire swath, including that part on the south side of Lewis Street, and turn it all into green space next to Jenison Park and um, across the street from the nursing school building and, and near the uh, new partnership building they have with, with Lord's Hospital and, and just do it that way. But I suppose they could move forward and if they don't get the property where that apartment building now sits. Right. And that, that last parcel that um, they would like to acquire, it's not in the middle of it, but it's not on the end. You know, so it's, it's not like, uh, you know, again, I'm sure they have a plan B uh, where they've got a workaround where if, if they can't acquire it in the near future, that they'll just, um, they'll, they'll build around it and they'll incorporate some nice things to, uh, to maybe keep that last building concealed from the rest of the green space. Also, not far from there, right at the Johnson City Binghamton line, is the EJ Workers Arch. And I know that uh, there have been plans in the pipeline to do the necessary repairs so parts of the arch don't crumble. Where do uh, things stand in, in the effort to find somebody who can do that work? Well, you know, that's such an effluent landmark to the village that, again, we are putting it out to bid. It's going to be out to bid again with the next month that we need to get that done. Um, the, the, the crumbling, is, it just doesn't, the optics aren't good. It's stable and it's safe but it's just the optics and we need to bring that back. I mean, that's just, um, that kind of defines a, it's the border between the city of Binghamton and the village of Johnson city, but that, that's just the definitive, uh, mark of Johnson city right there, the home of the square deal. Anything else we didn't touch on? I think we covered most of the village. We did. We did a nice job in, in a short period of time. Well, Martin Maney, Mayor of Johnson City, thanks for joining us. I uh, encourage other mayors to uh, join us because there's so much to report, a lot going on around the Triple Cities, and we are always glad to be able to bring the information to um, Binghamton Now listeners. Thanks for joining us. We'll have hey, you back Bob, on soon. One quick question. Yes. Um, is Johnson City still your favorite village? Absolutely. All right, because you didn't start the show off like that today, so I was a little oh. concerned. I had to ask. Well, Linda Jackson, I've told her. Privately. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mary Maney. Yep, have a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank Thanks you. for having me on. Thanks. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290 WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF News. Mostly cloudy today, high near 43. Partly cloudy tonight, low around 27. Wednesday, mostly sunny with a high near 54. A burial service has been held for the dozens of racehorses killed in a fire that tore through a barn at Tioga Downs in Nichols. State police investigators said Thursday morning's blaze in a horse stable was a case of arson. 
According to a Tauga Downs news release, 30 horses died in the fire. A private burial for the horses was held in what was described as a simple service. The horses were buried together adjacent to where the barn had stood. The racetrack statement said the burial was done with approval from authorities. State police arrested Boyd Fenton of Athens shortly after the fire was reported. He faces felony charges of arson, burglary, criminal mischief and assault. Edgar Clark sustained second-degree burns at his face after he used a fire extinguisher to try to knock down the flames. Six of Clark's horses were killed in the blaze. Tioga Downs has announced the racetrack is working to establish a memorial to the horses lost in the fire. The memorial will stand as a lasting tribute to their impact on the harness racing community. The owner of a well-known eatery and event venue north of Binghamton is looking for someone to buy the place. Travis Evans of Glen Albright has operated the airport and restaurant in the town of Maine for more than two decades. And uh, that while the operations of the restaurant are going very well, he has decided that he'd like to do something different. The restaurant was rebuilt after a fire tore through the old airport inn building in January of 2019. The business reopened in a newly constructed facility in April 2020 in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. It initially operated as a takeout restaurant to comply with state restrictions. The airport in business and land located on Airport Road recently were listed for sale with an asking price of $1.9 million. The facility includes a banquet hall and a pavilion. Evans said the business has about 30 employees, but staffing has been a challenge in recent months. While he's hoping to sell the place, Evans said it will continue to be business as usual at the airport inn. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Division of Human Rights launched the Hate and Bias Prevention Unit in December of 2022 to help communities combat prejudice and discrimination. The HBPU is chaired by Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado, and the unit's mission is focused around the statewide network of regional councils and a rapid response team. The Division of Human Rights has established 10 regional hate and bias prevention councils representing every region across the state, including the southern tier. The councils are comprised of a network of public and private stakeholders that include community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, law enforcement, government agencies, and other advocacy groups. These broad and diverse partners work together in building connections and local capacity to prevent and respond to hate and bias incidences through community engagement and mobilization. The councils provide a place for community members to share information about trends in different areas of the state, develop innovative policy solutions, organize educational programming, host community events to raise awareness about hate and bias prevention, offer healing circles and community dialogues, partner with schools to address intergroup conflict, participate in conflict resolution, and anti-racism training. Philip Ginter, executive director of the Ross Park Zoo in Binghamton, announced openings for a limited number of applicants to join an adventure of a lifetime to Nepal in search of red pandas. The trip to Nepal begins November 3, 2024 for 10 days. Those joining the adventure will be accompanied by Ross Park Zoo staff. 
In light of the 5.6 earthquake in Nepal on November 3rd that left villages devastated, support for the ecotourism industry and its recovery in the country is being seen as even more critical to Nepal's national and local economies, as well as for the conservation of biodiversity in the affected regions. The trip, in partnership with the Red Panda Network, has already been in the planning stages prior to the November 3rd natural disaster. During the expedition, participants will witness the wonders of Nepal, in addition to amazing views of Mount Everest and the beauty of the country's culture. There are only five to seven openings for the excursion, with an estimated cost per person of five to $6,000. For more information, visit the Ross Park Zoo website. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF. The real radio station. Serving real information in real time to real people with a real announcer. With real phones, actual microphones, and a commitment to serve the community. This is WNBF, and I'm Bob Joseph. Glad to be with you. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be taking your phone calls. So if you have thoughts, please focus, take a deep breath, and then work the phones. You know how to work them. And that's how you get on to WNBF. And that is what uh, Richard Bucci did. He dialed in and uh, he said, good morning. And I said, good morning. The uh, former Binghamton mayor joins us live here on this Tuesday morning. How you doing? Very good. How about yourself? Great. Great. What's Very what's good. going on over on the west side? Anything happening? Oh, right now things are pretty calm, which is good. Getting ready for the holiday. Uh, so... Looking forward to that, and you know the lawn signs are coming down from the previous election, so uh, kind of moving into a little bit of normalcy, I guess. Yeah, have you put up any holiday lighting yet? No, no not yet. I you know I traditionally wait to uh, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't do it much before that. Yeah, I think most people try to wait. Some people try to do it early just to beat the weather, but sometimes. Sometimes when I, I see people putting up the holiday uh, lighting, like around the 4th of July, sometimes I, I think they're, <laughs> yeah. they're going just a tad too far. Definitely. Anyway, what's on your mind? Well, thank you for having me on. Um, the reason I'm calling is I was listening to your election preview last week, and uh, Mayor Ryan was on uh, talking about his administration. But he was also, again, misrepresenting the state of the city's finances when he took office. And I think you've heard this innumerable times over the years. His claim is that the city was not only bankrupt, but my administration was hiding it. And that last comment um, is really what uh, kind of motivated me to call, call in. Um, not only is this inaccurate, but it, it's not possible. Uh, over the years, Mayor David has done a good job of rebutting these assertions, but I've never called in to address them. So I'd like to do that this morning, just take a few minutes to give you my overview of where things were when I left off. Uh, first and foremost, 
the Comptroller's Office, the New York State Comptroller's Office, reviews the city's finances annually. If there are any irregularities, if there's any red flags, they would put the city, the mayor, and city council on notice. If the city was bankrupt, they would move, come in and take control of the finance. So obviously there was no notice of irregularities, nor any intervention by the controller's office. So the bottom line is you just can't hide fiscal, irregular, fiscal irregularities or bankruptcy from the controller's office. And like I said, they review all the cities, municipalities in New York State on an annual basis. The other point I want to raise is our bond rating. Every year when the city goes to bond for infrastructure improvements or capital expenditures, its finances are reviewed by Moody. And Moody's not only reviews our finances, but it evaluates what it thinks the future fiscal health of the city will be. When I left office, Moody's had assigned us a triple A bond rate. And according to Moody's, this means our obligations are judged to be of the highest quality with minimal risk. So Moody's doesn't assign a triple A bond rating if a municipality is on the verge of bankruptcy. Just doesn't happen. All right. Next point that I know, go ahead. Oh, so, uh, well, and well, maybe I'll ask a couple questions afterwards. I'll, I'll let you make, okay. uh, yeah, I'll let you continue to, uh, okay. to, uh, make your points. I may have a couple of follow-up questions. Sure. Absolutely. Okay, the next thing is financial reporting. Uh, the Government Finance Officers Association of the United States and Canada reviewed our finances annually. And my administration was continually recognized by this very prestigious organization for its excellence and accuracy in financial reporting. So a municipality doesn't achieve this recognition if it's playing hide and seek with its finances. It just doesn't happen. So I think these are three potent facts. The controller's review, AAA bond rating, recognition from the U.S. Association of Finance Officers from the U.S. and Canada. And when Mayor Ryan hears these points, he just dismisses them because they don't fit into his narrative. Um, the other thing I want to just, what I think is important to kind of paint the picture of where we were, is that when a mayor comes into office, your first year in office, you're essentially inheriting the finances of the previous administration. So if there's fiscal problems or serious fiscal threats, they're usually reflected uh, in the first budget that you create. And when Mayor Ryan's first budget, when he came into office, he increased taxes for homeowners by 2.5%. That's a pretty moderate tax increase. If the city was on the edge of a fiscal cliff, there's no way he could have crafted a budget with that minimal of a tax increase. He just couldn't do it. When I came into office my first year, I had to raise taxes 6.4% to deal with some of the issues that I inherited. So um, kind of gives that kind of paint a picture of first years in office. And if you want to take it a step further uh, without getting into too many figures, my last year in office, I raised taxes 6.2% because I was trying to address as many issues as possible uh, before Mayor Ryan came into office. But, you know, the first year tax increases tell the story. His was 2.5, mine was 6.4. Um, and again, 
if there's bankruptcy, fiscal distress, you just can't craft a budget that doesn't doesn't balance. And then uh, the next point, I, I know he's talked a lot about fund balance. I'm, I'm sure, I think you probably could quote this back to me. I think you've heard it so many times. But the, the point I want to stress that there are three funds on which the city's finances are built. There's the general fund, the water fund, and the sewer fund. So if you want to get an accurate fiscal status of the, of the city, you have to take all three funds into consideration. So when Mayor Ryan left office, he had a general fund balance of $9.8 million. He had a water fund balance of a half a million dollars. And he had a sewer fund deficit of $4.2 million. So I'm going to repeat that. He had a sewer fund deficit, $4.2 million. So if you take the cumulative fund balance, the three funds, he had a fund balance of $6.1 million. If you take everything into consideration. When I left office, there was a general fund balance of $3.1 million, a water fund balance of $1 million, and a sewer fund balance of $1.2 million. So my cumulative fund balance was $5.3 million. So approximately a difference of 800000 between the two of us. But I think it's important to stress that a lot of his fund balance was based on the salaries and benefits of the 20 police officers that he cut during his tenure. So um, I think that gives you an accurate picture of where the fund balances were. And just one, I think one last fact that I kind of think puts everything into perspective is that when I left office, the city was at 69% of its constitutional tax limit. And when Mayor Ryan left office, the city was at 93% of its constitutional tax limit. So, you know, you might ask the question, you know, how do I explain, you know, Mayor Ryan's innumerable calls over the years with the same story? that I, I left the city bankrupt, and not only do we leave it bankrupt, but we were, we were hiding, which is completely impossible. And I just believe that he's repeated this so many times that he actually believes it. It's, it's Matt Ryan's urban legend. And, and like most urban legends, they're interesting tales, but there's just no basis in fact. So I think, you know, that's I kind of want to sum it up that way, but I want to go back to Comptroller's Review, AAA bond rating, recognition by the finance officers of the U.S. and Canada, all pointing to a picture of fiscal health, integrity, and stability. And um, like I said, to make the assertion that we were bankrupt and hiding it just absolutely has no basis in fact. Speaking with the former mayor of Binghamton, Richard Bucci, at 1120 here on WNBF. Um, yeah, I could ask you a few more questions about all that, but I, I think you covered, and I think you gave a, a good overview of your perspective. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment. One thing that I want okay. to touch on, though, is what just happened a week ago with the sure. the elections, the city council elections. Uh, uh, what was your reaction with this, the strength that the Democratic candidate showed in in this year's elections? Well, you know, uh, I kind of was a, more of an observer than, you know, a, a participant in the races. But, you know, and I've been 
asking myself the same question and thinking and actually thinking about it. And my assessment is this, the Republican candidates worked very hard. The Democratic candidates worked very hard. But I just think that the Democratic candidates had a better ground game than we did. I think they were better at um, putting volunteers on the street, personal interaction with voters, things along those lines. So uh, I'm not don't want to diminish all the hard work the Republicans put in. So I know a lot of the candidates were working very hard, but those intangibles, those other things you don't see, phone banks, um, volunteer groups going door to door, I think those have an impact. And I think that um, they can help sway voters, and I think they can help pull voters out to vote. Um, you know, one of the things that I always said, you know, to voters, I don't know what either party did. Um, well, I do know um, our house got a call from Democratic volunteers to go out to vote on Election Day. I'm not sure if the Republicans had the same operation. Just because I didn't get a call doesn't mean they weren't doing it. But in all the years that I ran, the three times I ran for mayor, I always said that one of the most critical parts of the election cycle is election day itself. And what I would do is I would be on the phone and I would have volunteers on the phone starting at 10 o'clock in the morning on election day. And I would spend the day calling voters right up to eight o'clock because you have to, you know, people know it's election day, but, you know, sometimes they need to be reminded to get out. And when the candidate himself or herself calls, I think that's potent. And um, so I think those kind of things kind of help shape uh, shape the results that we saw on, on election night. Do you think that, uh, as you mentioned, you didn't uh, have a big role in this year's election, but do you think, say, if you, as a former mayor, former Republican mayor, had, had taken a a greater role and perhaps even a greater role with uh, former Republican Mayor Rich David and perhaps even more involvement with the current mayor, Republican Jared Cram, you think that could have made a difference in some of the districts? Because some of the races were very close. And, and now, 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 now Republican Jared Cram is looking at uh, a totally different landscape starting in January dealing with a Democrat-controlled city council. Absolutely. Well, you know, I don't know if, if, if my involvement, you know, would have made a difference, but I, what I would have done is press to the candidates to do some of the things that I was, was uh, just talking about. In other words, you know, um, when, you're, when you're done, you know, when, when the door-to-door is finished uh, and you're done campaigning last weekend, you know, continuing to work right up to the last minute, to 8.30 on election night, calling voters. Get, trying to get them out, um, offering to take people to the polls if need be, um, having teams of volunteers not just leave door hangers on doors, which is what a lot of candidates on both sides do, but actually knock on the door and talk to the voter or voters in the household and you know tell them a little bit about the candidate that you are representing. I just think the personal interaction phoning personally, knocking doors, besides the candidate doing, but other volunteers on their behalf, I think that has an impact. I really do, uh, especially on the local level. I mean, as you go higher up, some of this is not practical, 
But, you know, uh, you know the, the phrase all politics is local is true for everything. But when you're really at the city council level, that's absolutely true. So looking forward, what does all this mean, say, a month and a half now from now for Jared Graham? I mean, obviously, it's... It's going to be a lot different for him with his initiatives dealing with um, Democrats, including some new faces on city council. Oh, it is. And I think, you know, the key is, I think, uh, obviously, you know, there's going to be disagreements, no doubt. I think uh, some of the Democrats have uh, philosophical beliefs they strongly believe in. The mayor has his Uh so, you know, I think on some areas you're going to have to agree to disagree. But the key point now is, is, is I, you know, sitting where Mayor, Mayor Cram is, and I don't think he, I think he knows this already, doesn't need me to say it, but, you know, is communication now, is reaching out to all, all the members, uh, even though you might strongly disagree on some issues, but seeing where you can work together and see what parts of, of his agenda he can move forward. Because I'm sure there's, there's going to be areas where they agree, and I think if um, if you if you if you stay in constant touch with them and talk to them, and uh, even if you know they vote against you, you know don't let that deter you from reaching out to them again. I think that's basic way it's going to work. If, if if you want it to work, I think that's the way it has it has to go. Well, certainly this wasn't the outcome Mayor Cram expected or. Or wanted, but do you think, as a former mayor of Binghamton, do you think that this actually could work out okay with with the Republican mayor going forward the next couple of years, and then also with Democrats controlling city council? Is it is it potentially a good thing for Binghamton? Well, I, I mean, I think I mean I, I think it could work. I mean, I think the key is is that like anything, I mean, uh, all the members of that ran for city council, Democrat and Republican, you know, all pledged to represent their neighborhoods, um, and uh, and and to do that as best they could. And I think part of that guarantee or part of that promise is that you know, working with with the mayor whenever possible, and you know, maybe sometimes if there's big disagreements, maybe working to compromise. So I think. Uh, people expect, they don't expect the council members to go in there and, you know, uh, kind of try to brick up the mayor's office. I think, I think everybody who voted is looking for a working relationship between the two. And, um, and I think if everybody's open to that, you know, things can move forward. You know, it doesn't mean you have to agree on everything because they're not. They obviously have some different opinions and that's, that's fine. And, and people voted for that. But I think they also want they want to see the city continue to move forward. Are you concerned, though, that Democrats could perhaps take an obstructionist posture and make things miserable for Mayor Cram? Well, you know, it's almost like at this point, um, it's like I hope that's not the case. And I, I'm waiting to see, you know, how things start to play out at the beginning of the year, because I think, you know, that might give us an indication of where uh, where we're going to go. Um, so I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that, um, that, uh, the, the individuals that ran, I, I know some of them, uh, who ran as, uh, Democrats, I, I had an opportunity to cross their paths at different events uh, during the summer. 
And, you know, I think they all are people that, you know, believe in Binghamton and want to do a good job. So I, I think if they hold to that philosophy, um, you know, things can, things can work. Um, but, I mean, like I said, you know, I don't expect, you know, the same kind of results that you would have if you would have a Republican majority. But, you know, that's, that's where we are today, and you just got to kind of find a way. How do we move forward and make this work as best we can? Former Binghamton Mayor Richard, I was almost going to call you Richard David, Richard Bucci. That's another, by the way, that means we also have to have uh, Richard David on the program, too. He's He's sure. been busy, too, lately. I, I ran into him uh, about a week ago. He's got a big project going on here in downtown Binghamton that he's he's been focused on for the last few months. So one of these days we'll we'll have um, one of these days, you know, I know people think I'm I'm crazy to suggest this, but you remember wasn't that long ago that you and Rich David and Matt Ryan were all here in the same studio. And a lot of people thought that would never happen. I mean, that was tied yeah, in with, with the, the anniversary of the city. But I, I received a lot of positive feedback from that time when, when the three mayors uh, and Rich David was, was mayor at the time. Heck, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be opposed if we put in an extra microphone to have you, Rich David, Matt Ryan, and Jared Cram all in here sometime just talking about the city. Not so we can have uh, a wild um, debate about <laughs> issues, but... But the one thing I I have taken away from covering the mayors over the years is that even though mayors have different worldviews and different different priorities, my sense is every mayor of Binghamton has always wanted the best for the city. And that's why at some point I may throw that idea out there as as odd and crazy as it sounds to have have the current mayor, along with three former mayors, on on the program, just talking about the city, not to start trouble, just to talk about. <laughs> no, I'm serious. What do you think no, about that? No, no, I, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I think there's a sense. I mean, that uh, when a community has, you know, um, you know, some of its for, former mayors still living within the community, I think it's a very positive thing. And um, and, and, and despite the fact that. Um, we may not always agree, uh, you know, we still have, you know, respect for each other for, you know, an individual that held that position of mayor of the city of Binghamton. And, um, and so when we, you know, it's not a situation where we see each other that, you know, we don't talk to each other. Most of the time we, you know, we interact with no problem. We talk, uh, we compare notes about what's happened and what goes on. And um, so I think what you're talking about is, within the realm of possibility well i hope it can happen it's a it's a fairly it's a fairly small and elite group only 51 people have been uh, lucky enough to serve as mayor of our city that's right so you know like i said it was it was 30 years ago this year that i was elected for the first time and uh hard to believe it's been that long and uh, you know it's, it's an opportunity that i will always cherish and uh, it was an experience that uh, I'll never forget. Former Mayor Richard Bucci, thanks for being with us on WNBF. Hope you have a good day. Thank you, Bob. 11.32 at WNBF Live Radio. The way it's just not done anymore. That is interesting. Why, why are we doing live radio? 
and actually talking with current and former officials and residents and local issues. Don't they know what I'm doing? 607-772-1290. I'm Bob Joseph on Binghamton Now. From the Galt Auto Studios, this is WNBF News Radio AM 1290. Also available at 92.1 FM. We're still saving the Southern Tier money at Galt Toyota. Phones we go. Kathy in Endicott, you're on the air. Um, I have a question. Um, did I hear correctly they're putting in a car wash where Friendlies used to be? In Johnson City. They yeah, they uh, yeah. decided, the guy from the car wash decided um, that Friendly restaurant had run its course, so he, he thought that'd be a great place for his car wash. Splash car wash. No Friendly, just Splash. I find that kind of strange because at the other, uh, towards the west, there's a car wash right on the corner. And then towards the uh, east, there's, a, I think it's a self-wash car wash. I, I'm not sure why another car wash is necessary, but hey. Because Johnson City, Johnson City has lots of cars in need of cleansing. <laughs> oh, Soon Johnson City will be noted. Around the, the universe, car wash city. Yeah. yeah, the car wash <laughs> capital of the universe. More car washes per capita, and and the other thing is what what occurs to me with so many car washes so close together that means competition. So at some point there's going to be a car wash price war. So it gets down to oh, the yeah. point where where you want to get your car cleaned. It's like, wow, it used to be whatever twelve bucks or. 15 bucks or whatever with hot wax and then and suddenly (laughs) suddenly it's like a dollar 29 as long as you mention you heard it here so yeah the competition could be great i i want to see a splash Uh, car wash uh i know more traffic baby more traffic. i don't worry about the traffic what although although what about my fribble I don't get a fribble at the car wash. Oh, you know. could only get your yeah. fribble and ice cream sundaes after your meal. Maybe to make it up to us who miss friendlies, maybe they'll give us um, a free Sunday after every car wash. Yeah. Except on Sundays. Yeah. It could be like the chicken. Yeah. How about this? They could be like that chicken sandwich company, and they, they <laughs> do car washes only six days a week. Can you imagine? No car washes on Sundays. So you can have a dirty car. You have a dirty car on Sunday. Holy car. Hey, thank you for uh, calling in. Yep, bye. WNBF, our new schedule, off the air on Sundays. (laughs) Hey, it works for the chicken sandwich empire. Six days a week.
Ron from the West Side, you're on the air. Hey, Bob, I called. About, I'm, I'm calling about a particular media issue, but before I do, uh, I want to say that your early part of the show, speaking about the movie Liebesrom, um, made me think about uh, uh, about that uh, going back. Uh, I came to Binghamton. Uh, in fact, the, the day I'm coming up to my 50th anniversary because on November 29th, 1973, I started working at the Binghamton Psychiatric Center in that great big building, um, which was, I guess, uh, a, um, a building for what they called inebriates at one time. And I worked in that building. It was a beautiful building, the, uh, uh, the, the mahogany and the woodwork. And was, so that was 50 years ago. So that brought back, uh, uh, quite a memory. Um, when, when I began, when I began my sojourn in Binghamton, New York, um, I did want to bring up an issue and I, I, it's an issue that we've touched on before. And it, I, I had a dilemma, um, and it was it was with the Binghamton Press and Sun Bulletin. I know, and we've discussed the fact that there's been a cutback of reporters and and such, and um, and so we don't get all of the Binghamton or, or local area news that we would like. Um, you know, over the course of the last quite a few years. Uh, I I sent to the press, and they were good enough to publish guest editorials uh, that on the editorial page, and uh, you can only send in one per month. But I was doing that, and um, pretty much in due course, they were printed on a variety of subjects that I thought were interesting, and apparently they liked them too because they printed them. And then uh, I noticed they stopped and not only stopped, uh, you know, my, my presentations that I sent in, but there was no local, uh, there is no local editorial um, guest editorials in the paper. And, and this has been going on now for months. I sent an email to Kevin Hogan, who was, uh, involved with, I guess, the editorial page. Well, he's and the I editor. Understand. But remember, yeah, Kevin Hogan is editor now, or executive editor for several Central New York papers. So he's he's responsible. I, I'm not sure how many papers he he currently is responsible for. So it's it's no longer one one editor per paper. Okay, so you sent a note to Kevin Hogan. Yeah, I did not get a reply. I, I asked. Simply, why aren't we getting any local opinion? I mean, you open up the Sunday paper. I mean, they cut it down to Sunday some years ago. You could only uh, get local opinion on the editorial page on Sunday. Okay. But now they've taken that away. And what they do is they plug in, as you know, they plug in editorials from uh, people and, uh, uh, you know, luminaries from Detroit or from Albany or whatever, and they're not—they're not local people, and they're not—it's not a, a, a local a view. So 
I, I kind of that that disturbed me because uh, they disappeared and I didn't get a reply. Had no sense of what what was going to happen. So I'm sad to say, but I I ended my subscription with the Binghamton Press and Sun Bulletin, and I say this with the unlikely uh, possibility, but I you know I would take it up again. If uh, there was some turning of the corner here, uh, making this paper somewhat more local, it's becoming less and less so. So um, I, 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 th- that's what I did. I wasn't happy about that because, as you, as you know, and as you do, you like to support local journalism. So I know, I- and I'm so, I'm so old-fashioned. I also insist, even though they don't like it, they'd rather I have sleazy pay so they could take my money automatically as I sleep, but instead, I insist on writing a check. I just put a check in the mail for the biggest amount I've ever paid a month for that newspaper, because I also pay for print, printed in Rockaway or wherever, New Jersey, but I paid again, and I do it every month. It's like it's like a habit I can't quit, because as, as bad as Gannett is treating Binghamton, and I always... I always stipulate, as badly as Gannett has treated Binghamton, Elmira, Ithaca, and all of its other small markets, I still feel a need to support local journalism. And for now, it's the only paper we have. So I support Kevin Hogan. I support the new reporter who has has just... uh, you know, started in the last few weeks. I support everybody at the local level. Um, you know, Ricardo is the new reporter. I had a, a chance to speak with him. I am offering him as much encouragement as possible because I'm glad to see people get into the business. But as far as Gadet and what the corporate people have done, it disappoint. It continues to disappoint me immensely, and yet I haven't stopped writing my monthly check, and it goes off, I guess, in the mail to somewhere in Cincinnati, probably where the WKRP studios used to be. I keep getting my print paper six days a week and keep looking for when there is local content. I support it. I support them. I hope that they'll reimagine their newspapers across the USA. If not today, maybe tomorrow. Elevator operator song going up, going up. And you see what I did there? Mostly cloudy today, 43. Partly cloudy tonight, 27. Sunny tomorrow, 54. And Thursday, you can skip school if you want to face detention. Sunny Thursday, high 60. And right now in downtown Binghamton, it's 45. That's 5 Celsius at News Radio. WNBF. Bob Joseph with your Binghamton Now program. WNBF. 
11.52. Bob Joseph live on WNBF. Rob and Port Crane. Good morning. You're on the air. Hi there, Bob. I was just wondering, is the Skylark Diner still open up in Vestal? Last I knew it, it was, yeah. Cool. Well, I'd like to invite Bob and Dave so we can talk about maybe having a podcast. How about tomorrow at 9? No. No. (laughs) Oops. WNBF. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. WNBF, you're on the air. What's your first name? Hello, Mike from Kirkwood. All right. What's on your mind? Well, uh, can you guess how much the president of WSKG makes the salary? I don't know. 150, 200, I don't know. No, it's more like uh, over 700,000. Yeah. Oh, she makes 700,000? Over 700,000. Oh, well then I, I came across 780,000, 720 some thousand. Oh, okay. You know. Well. So so they're they're asking for money all the time. That's an awful lot of money to be making. What does that person do? Yeah, I don't know if that that figure is accurate. Where where do you see that figure? I, I just went online. WSKG. Where? Okay, WSKG. Where I'm I'm on the I, website. I, where is well, it? I I don't know. I can't look at it now. Well, I mean, there there has to be a section on the WSKG website. What section was it in? I think it was in their website. I think. No, I'm looking at the they, website they, now. Yeah. So where where do I go to find what she is paid? Because I, I find that figure, um, let's put it this way. I, I have my doubts that, that that figure you cited is accurate. So where on the website would I find this? Uh, I believe so because I, I... No, I mean where... Not, not you believe so. You, you have a figure. You said it's on the WSKG website. I'm looking at the website now. So tell me generally, what was it under? It came under and it gave uh, how much uh, the employees make. And if you want to work for WSKG, like the engineers, how much they make. Everybody. Yeah, I just don't. I, but, okay. but again, so I'm looking under about. There's a staff directory. I, I'm trying to find the area. You need... You need to give me some specifics so I can verify what you just said on the program. I told you I can't because I, I just went online. I don't remember where it was. Oh, okay. Well, so, and I'm sorry, I didn't catch your, what's your uh, first name? Mike. And Mike, I went from, Mike from, Mike from where? Uh, Kirkwood. Kirkwood. Okay, so Mike, what I would like you to do, so... This afternoon or tonight, go back on the website and then find where on the website. So when you call me tomorrow here on the program between 9 and noon, you can tell me where on the website it makes that um, indication that shows that the current president and CEO is being paid that much. Okay, anybody out there listening? Wait, I'm, I'm talking to you. It's just you and me talking because we need to nail that figure down because the figure to me doesn't sound accurate right so but you're you insist you insist that according to the website she's being paid more than seven hundred thousand dollars a year yes okay all right as i say i'm I'm not saying it's not true i'm saying i want to see it so that mike from kirkwood will call in tomorrow so I can find out exactly where it is on that website. And then 
we can go from there. That's our program for today. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm Bob Joseph. You're listening to News Radio WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 AM, WNBF Binghamton. Now on 92.1 FM, W221 EJ Binghamton, a town square media.